And it's good to be back behind my own pulpit. Isn't that a great thing? I love preaching to this church. You laugh at my stupid jokes. You, you, you don't look at me like I'm some weirdo when I say something like, are we supposed to laugh at this time or not? So it's good to be back. And I love preaching here because you love the Word. And I can tell that as I share the Word of God with you. So that's a wonderful thing. We're continuing a summer series that we're doing, and it's called Changed Minds, Changed Lives. And a special word of thanks to Pastor Bacon and to TJ and to Dan uh, as they shared the Word of God in my absence. I so appreciated them bringing the Word of God to you. They all did such a wonderful job, and I'm thankful for the chance to uh, get away so you can hear other pastors who love the Lord and teach His Word. It's good for you as a church body. Um, I saw a cartoon one time about vacation, and it said the pastor should get two or three weeks of vacation. If he's good, he deserves it, and if he's not, we deserve it. So I'll let you decide which uh, one of those applies to you. (laughs) The series that we're going through this changed mind, changed lives. It's so important that we have thinking that is directed biblically to what God calls us to do. And this morning's passage, Philippians chapter 2, verses 1 through 4, I entitled it Selfies or Group Shot. By the way, that reminds me. Uh, there we go. As we look at our culture I've made the observation that we live in a selfie culture. And what I mean by that is this. We are at the forefront of everything. Everything else around us is just a backdrop for me. And that's wrong thinking. We should never look at ourselves as the core, the center of everything that goes on around us. We are a part. And that's particularly true when it comes to the body of Christ. When we look at the body of Christ, the body of Christ is not about me. It is about Christ, and it is about His body. And that's what I want us to see as we look into this text this morning. The importance of putting aside this me-centered approach to everything and looking at the importance of understanding who God is, how I fit in with what God has designed for me for my spiritual growth, and that is the church body, and how I'm a part of something much bigger. Now, unfortunately, so many people have allowed consumerism to come into their idea of how I fit into a church. Does it Supply the things that I want. They treat me the way that I want. Can I get the things that I want there? All of those things are considerations that we use in evaluating what church should I be a part of. We also look at it in terms of our attendance, don't we? Well, you know, if it's convenient for me, then I'll come to church today. But if it's not, well, no big deal. It's about me, not about God. And that thinking is contrary to the Word of God. And that's what I want us to see this morning as we look into the Scripture. So let's begin with the first verse. And what I want us to drill down on this morning is the idea that thinking uh, that promotes unity is laid out for us in Scripture. And it begins here in this passage, Philippians chapter 2, by talking about how we're to treat others as those important to Christ. Look at the first verse. The Apostle Paul makes this statement. So, 
If there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, and we're going to pause there for a moment because what I want us to see that Paul is setting up for us is this idea that others are important to Christ. The blessings that I have as a child of God and so appreciate the worship that Dan has led us in this morning, pointing us to Christ pointing us to the many blessings that we do have as a result of Jesus Christ, but they are not unique to me. I share those blessings with other believers. In our culture, so much of what we look at is, again, all about me. And I forget that the person sitting in the pew next to me, the person who attends the church that is around us, they're all participants in a personal relationship with Jesus Christ if they have trusted Him as their Savior. And they share in these blessings. So let's look at the blessings that Paul reminds us of right here in this text. First of all, he says this, if there is any encouragement in Christ. Now, the word encouragement, in the original language, it carries with it the idea of experiencing the presence of Christ. He is the one who is alongside, and I use this word intentionally, us. Not just the idea of Christ being alongside me, but the idea of Christ being alongside us. There is a group mentality to our walk with God and to our faith that needs to be important to our consideration. I am a part of Christ. Christ is a part of me, but we are all a part of Christ as a church body. And we have the presence of Christ right in our midst because of who He is and because of who we are. That's what the Word of God is reminding us of in this passage of Scripture. And there's great encouragement in Christ. He is my high priest. He is your high priest. He is our high priest. We go to Him in prayer. We solicit the help of the Lord together. The Word of God is really stressing the idea of not looking individualistically at who we are in Christ, but understanding who we are as the people of God together with Christ. And I think that's driven in such a unique way in this passage with such clarity. We need to understand something else. Not only is there this encouragement in Christ, but there is comfort from His love. I'm a recipient of the love of Jesus Christ, and that is great comfort. As a matter of fact, when we look at the book of Philippians, something that Paul closed out the first chapter of Philippians with was this idea of persecution. And the fact that when we stand firm for the gospel, we will face rejection and persecution from the world around us. We're reminded that as we take our stand with Christ, it's been granted to us, verse 29, that for the sake of Christ, we should not only believe in Him, but also suffer for His sake. But then Paul concludes it with this idea, engaged in the same conflict that you saw I had and now hear that I still have. In other words, this, this word engaged in the same conflict. There's a unity that's being expressed there. There's a oneness. And what the Word of God is reminding us of is this. Although the world rejects us, Christ loves us. We have a comfort in that love. 
But one of the ways that Christ expresses his love to us is through the body of Christ. We are instruments used by God to express that comforting love that Christ wants us to know and experience. This is something that we should strive toward as a church body. I need to remember that the church body is an instrument through which the love of Christ is expressed, and not only in what I receive from the church body, but what I give to the church body. If I see a person who is struggling, does the love of Christ not compel me to go to that person and minister to them, to care for them, to express the comfort of Christ's love? When I see someone who's discouraged, doesn't it require me in Scripture to go and build that person up. This is what God is calling us to in thinking as a group rather than just thinking as an individual. Look at the next statement in that first verse. I have encouragement in Christ. I have comfort from His love, but also participation in the Spirit. Now again, as a child of God, I am indwelled by the Spirit of God. But you know, the Word of God also tells me that I am baptized into the body of Christ. I am participating, I am sharing in the ministry of the Holy Spirit with the church body that I'm a part of. It's so important that we grasp this truth, not as an individual, but as a part of the body of Christ. We share in the Spirit. That person that is sitting next to you, if they are a child of God, if they have trusted Christ as their Savior, they are a participant in the Spirit of God just as you are. This is also translated in other versions as fellowship in the Spirit. The idea of that connectedness. The Spirit of God produces that connectedness. So I need to remember that. I am part of something that is bigger than myself designed by God, according to the purpose of God. Look at the last two elements that are mentioned in this first verse. There is affection and sympathy. Now, affection is a unique word. In the original language, it means bowels of compassion. As the church in the first century and in this culture would refer to compassion and love, they didn't refer to the heart they referred to the bowels. So, guys, next time you express love to your wife, say, I love you with all my bowels. <laughs> it will be so much more meaningful to them. Valentine cards will take on a whole new meaning as you have a picture of the intestines. It will just be wonderful and romantic, right? The reason they say the bowels, what happens when you feel deep emotion? You feel it in your gut right? That's the idea. You are moved by that person in such a unique way. You care about them. You love them. God is saying to us that part of what we're to have in our experience as a church family is a deep affection for one another. We are to feel compassionate about one another. That's the idea. In other words, the church isn't just a gathering of people where we come together like we would for a civic club or something else. 
The church is a place where we come together and there is love and connection and commitment to one another. That's the idea. God has designed the church to provide that and He has called us to participate in that as followers of God. The other element that is mentioned in this passage is sympathy. Now, our word sympathy means to feel with, and that's very close to what the Scripture means when it talks about sympathy in this passage. It is us being merciful to one another. In other words, not only do I feel for you, but I participate in your needs. That's the idea. You know, I've had so many people communicate to me, Pastor, I, I, I went through this, and I had the church body pray for me and express concern for me. And you have no idea what that means. It's such an important part of our interaction as the body of Christ. We are not just a gathering. We are a church family. And we feel affection, sympathy for one another. So when the Scripture is saying all of this, notice the first verse says, if there is any encouragement. As a matter of fact, in some translations, it repeats that, if there is, if, if there is, if there is, and it lists each one of these ideas that we've talked about thus far this morning. But when we think in terms of if, sometimes we think in terms of, well, it may be or it may not be. That's not the way it's articulated in the Scripture. Really, what's being communicated could just as easily be translated, since there is, and that's the idea that we need to take away from this. These are things that God has baked into our lives and baked into the church. And this is how God wants us to interact with one another, to treat one another. This is how He wants us as a part of a church to be. And so what does He go on to say? As we go on in this text, what He calls us to do in light of these truths is to take joy in our connection with other believers. Look at what the Scripture says. Complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord with one mind. Now, this idea of the one mind, it's mentioned twice in these two verses. It's an important concept that we need to grasp it's talking really about unity and about our connection with one another. And notice how clearly the Apostle Paul says this. His greatest joy as the one who planted the church of the Philippians, as the one who was responsibly teaching them the Apostles' teaching, what was more important to him than anything else was a unity of mind. The idea that they were focused on the same purpose, the same goals, looking to the things that God has called us to do and living them out. Not elevating themselves and their personal ideas and agendas above what God has laid out, but seeing the importance of participating in what God has expressed as really important and in a single-minded fashion with one mind looking to these things. Now, having one mind, what does that mean? Having one mind does not mean we all think the same. I've got a weird, twisted mind, right? 
I can't expect someone to approach things, to think about things in the same way that I do. This unity that we're being called to does not mean uniformity. God creates us unique and distinct. As a matter of fact, I have a theory. It's not borne out in Scripture, but I think it's borne out by experience. I think sometimes God puts people into our lives that we will have difficulty with as far as connecting with them and understanding them because it stretches us. And we see the importance of pursuing the same mind even though we have differences. Any of us can get along with people who think exactly the same way that we think. But when we must interact with people who think differently, who have different approaches, who have different preferences, that's a challenge. And it's something that God produces in our lives that we cannot produce in and of ourselves. This is what God is calling us to as far as unity. So let's talk about this in a practical way. I have a purpose, an agenda, an idea that I want to advance within the church, and it doesn't gain traction. I have one of two choices. Take my toys and go home and be angry, or look and say the unity of the church body and the single-mindedness of working together trumps my desire to have my way. That's being of one mind. God wants us to pursue that kind of thinking. We are to pursue at all costs that single-mindedness. But then look at what the text goes on to say. We are also to have the same love. You know, the Scripture speaks of the importance of love within all of our relationships. We're to love our neighbors, husbands love your wives, but in this particular passage, it's talking about having love for the body of Christ, those people that we are connected to with a single-mindedness. We're to recognize the importance of having a connection in those things. As a matter of fact, when we look at Scripture, this idea of unity is so important that the Lord Jesus Christ included it in His prayer to the Father as he was preparing to go to the cross, as he prayed for the church. And this is what Jesus said. I do not ask for these only, but for those who will believe in me through the word, that, now look at this, they may all be one just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be in us, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. You know what the real mission of the church is it's, it's to reach the world. It's to share the gospel. But if we do not have a unity within the church, a oneness within the church, the world looks at us and says, how are they any different than the Moose Club? How are they any different than any civic club that is out there? There's no difference. As a matter of fact, to my dismay, I've heard people who have served on business boards and the church board, and some of them have said, operating on this board is just like the board that I serve on at my job. The only difference is we start in prayer. As a matter of fact, some of them go on to say, and sometimes if things are bad enough at our business, we start in prayer there too. God wants us to understand that. This unity, this oneness that is motivated by love is God's 
desire for the church. And I am to mobilize toward those things. I am to put those things into practice. God wants us to be a loving, united church body. Look at what else we find in this text. In addition to having this same mind, this same love, we are to be in full accord with one another. Now, full accord, again, doesn't mean that I'm going to think exactly the same way that everybody else in this church body thinks. I can't. It's not in me to think in the same way that everyone in here thinks. We have differences in experience and approach in all of these things. But being of one accord means that I set aside me and I look at the church body and I think about what is for the good of this church. I take the same approach that Jesus took in expressing His love through sacrifice. In fact, John said this, by this we know love, that He laid down His life for us and we ought to lay down our lives for the brothers. Now, not many of us will be called upon to lay down our life. But what we do is sacrifice for the church body, loving one another, living in a way that expresses these high goals in the way we conduct ourselves. So then we come to the third verse. And as we come to the third verse, the Apostle Paul starts talking about thinking that destroys unity. We're called to unity, verses 1 and 2. What are the pitfalls that I can fall into causing me to behave in a way that forgets unity, that moves more toward that selfie than the group shot? Well, let's talk about this. First of all, tethering everything I do to self. Look at the third verse. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit. The greatest detriment to unity is making stuff all about me. Now, this word that is translated in the ESV as selfish ambition is an interesting word in the original language. What it carries with it is, is, is this idea. It's scheming to have my own way. Or it was also used of mercenaries. In other words, I don't do anything unless there's something in it for me. And as I think about this, as it applies to our interaction with other believers in the church, I need to remember that I don't come to church just for what I get out of it. I come to church where I can serve and where I can be used of God, and, and, and not so I can be elevated in the estimation of everybody as I do it, but for the simple purpose of serving God. Man, when I look at my own motivation, it's so easy to fall into the trap of selfish ambition. How's this going to make me look? How are people going to view me? Did I get the recognition that I deserve for the things that I've done? All of those are questions that should call into question our motivation and cause us to ask ourselves, why do I do what I do? Am I doing it for the church body, or am I doing it with a selfish ambition that's all about me? God is telling us to do nothing from this. 
Don't let that be your motivation. Leroy Imes, the head of the Navigators years ago, had this statement about serving others. You can tell a lot about whether or not you're a servant by the way people treat you when they treat you like one, or by the way you respond when people treat you like one. Sorry, I messed up that quote. But do you catch the idea? What happens when I don't get the recognition, the feedback that I anticipate, that I want? Is it all about me or is it all about God? You know, I get concerned because sometimes when you go on social media, people are doing wonderful things. But then when you look at how they go on and on about what they're doing and how they're doing it, you have to ask, what is the motivation in that? Is it so people will look at me and say, wow, what a wonderful person, what a great person. If that's our motivation, we're doing it from selfish ambition. You know, as a pastor, I see so many people who serve God behind the scenes. Nobody knows what they do. As a matter of fact, I get kind of honked off sometimes because somebody will make a comment about somebody not ever doing anything, and I just shake my head and say, man, if you only knew. They do not subscribe to the book of Hesitations, which says, tutest thou not thine own horn, and the same shalt not be tooted. They are just quiet about what they're doing in serving God. And that's what we should do. Serve God for the sake of serving God, remembering it's not all about me. Look at the other pitfall. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit. Now, what is conceit? The literal way of translating this passage is empty glory. In other words, it's a type of thought process that seeks to usurp the glory of God and focus it on me. That's the idea. If I'm a part of a church body, it's all about pointing people to Jesus. It's all about focusing on God. You know, I was thinking as, as our worship time was going on this morning and thinking about the words of, of the music that, that Dan uh, shared with us through worship, I thought, man, all of the, these words are so Christ-centered. It's, it's a beautiful expression of who we are in Christ and what Christ has done for us. And I don't see that in some churches. As I've visited some churches when I'm on vacation, not my son's church this past one, nobody draw that conclusion. But as I've visited some, when you go to worship, it's all about me. It's very me-centered. You make me feel this way, God. You make me feel this way, God. Well, guess what? It doesn't matter what I feel. What matters is who God is. And so, I so appreciate Dan's ministry to us by pointing us to Jesus and reminding us that He's the one that we worship. It's not about me. It's about God. And so, we need to be people who avoid that self-glory. Because here's the thing. Even if I do excel in something, even if I do have ability in a given area, guess who gave me that ability? What's the answer? The Lord. Absolutely, the Lord. Paul reminds us of this when he wrote this to the Corinthians. 
For who sees anything different in you? What do you have? Now, listen to this. What do you have that you did not receive? If then you received it, why do you boast as if you did not receive it? Wow, that's a huge perspective builder. And so the Word of God is calling us to behave in a way that puts aside that conceit, that vain glory, that empty glory that we seek for ourselves, and we are to focus instead on God. Look at what else we see in this. There's a strong word of contrast in this passage. It says, do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but, and there's that strong word of contrast, in humility count others as more significant than yourselves. Humility. Such an important attribute for us as followers of God. What humility communicates is this idea. It's a lowliness of mind. In other words, rather than insisting on evaluating ourselves by comparing ourselves to others and looking at ourselves as superior to them, I gain a perspective and say, I am who I am because of what Christ has done in me, and I am not to compare myself against another person and lift myself up and devalue them. This is not what God would have us do. God wants us to be humble in our thinking. In other words, I am to go on a quest of looking to others, looking to God, and then evaluating where I fit into that picture. Our culture has reversed that. We begin with self, and we evaluate everything else in light of that. God does not want us to operate in that way. We are to count others as more significant than ourselves. In other words, the word that's used here in the original language means they are of higher rank, of greater prominence. That's the idea. How many of us go through life thinking about the interests and the needs of others. So much of what I experience in marriage counseling and in other aspects of our lives is a reversal in this. They're not producing the kind of feelings in me that I want to have. That's a common theme in much of the marriage counseling that I do. I'm sure Ross would agree with the same idea. When we really look at it, that's not taking the other person and considering their interests and elevating them above our own. This is how God wants us to operate. This is how God wants us to think. Finally, we come to the fourth verse. And we find in the fourth verse that trying to promote self-interests above others is definitely going to short-circuit the thinking that would produce unity. Look at verse 4, and it's such simple, profound counsel. Do nothing out of selfish ambition or conceit. That was the third verse. But then it goes on to say this in verse 4, let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. We find it so easy to become wrapped up in ourselves, don't we? We find it so easy to be so honed in on our needs and our interests that we forget the interests of others. Now listen, the Word of God does not tell us to forget our own interests. There are things that we need to do that we need to take care of that pertain to us, and it's never scripturally wrong to work toward those things. 
But we are not to only look to those things that pertain to us. We are also to factor in the interests of others. I like the way Paul frames this in the book of Galatians. Bear one another's burdens and so fulfill the law of Christ. For if anyone thinks he is something when he is nothing, he deceives himself. But let each one test his own work and then his reason to boast will be in himself alone and not in his neighbor for each will have to bear his own load. Now, the Scripture is talking about us taking care of our interests, bear our own load, but it's also talking about the interests of others, not looking at others as a mechanism to make me look better, but looking to the interests of others and seeking to minister to them, to care for them, to be a believer through which the compassion and love of Christ flows into the lives of other people. As I look at this text, as I think about this passage of Scripture, I'm challenged. My old fallen nature has a default position that is all about me. And it's easy to get drawn into thinking only in those terms. God puts me through tests that remind me of that fallen nature. And I have to stop and evaluate why am I doing what I'm doing and who am I doing it for. And all too often what I find is I'm doing it for me, not for others, not for God. And brothers and sisters, that is thinking that needs to change so that we have changed lives. Pastor after pastor that I talk to is lamenting a shift in thought when it comes to being a part of a church body. Consumerism has gripped the hearts of so many people where they choose their churches by the programs they offer, by the beauty of the facility, by the many things that will draw people, and they make their decisions on that basis. God wants us to think in terms of where can I serve? How can I contribute? How can I be a part of a church body that is expressing the love and the compassion of Jesus Christ, where the Word of God is taught where I will seek to grow in my walk with God hand in hand with fellow believers side by side. That's the thinking that God wants us to pursue. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this text. Thank you for the reminder that it is to us all that there is so much more than us. We thank you, Lord, that you are the God who saves, who encourages, who strengthens, the God who has given us any gifts or abilities that we have to serve you. And God, my prayer is that we will do just that, that we will put aside personal preferences, personal agendas, and look to the agenda of Jesus Christ as expressed in his word and live it practically, 
in the way that we conduct ourselves as we fellowship with other believers. And I pray these things in Jesus' name.